Hey, welcome to the 52nd episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the legendary MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today, my guest for the one-year anniversary of this show is the great Ken Rosenthal, the longtime Major League Baseball writer who has covered the game for outlets ranging from the Baltimore Sun to Fox Sports to now The Athletic. And Ken, I mean, he's seen it all. He wrote the definitive columns when Cal Ripken became the sports Iron Man. And interestingly, he and Ripken didn't really have a great relationship. And he's covered more World Series and All-Star games than pretty much anyone on the planet. So let's dig deep with a baseball lifer. Right now, on the one-year anniversary of two writers slinging Yang. All right, Ken, first of all, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I'm going to start with a weird one here. I did a search on newspapers.com to find the oldest clip by you that I could find. <laughs> and I'm going way back to the dark ages. April 11th, 1985, Courier Post, based out of Camden, New Jersey. First clip I found from a young Ken Rosenthal. Red McCarthy test slated for April 22nd. And your lead was sometimes Felix Red McCarthy was saying the other day, it's funny how things work out. When you're a kid, you have all these dreams, McCarthy said. You want to be a fireman, a policeman, baby with a movie star. Never did I envision that I wind up as a medical center. Okay. Then I found like another lead. I don't even remember remotely that story. It's a, yeah. And it was a good story, actually. Then I found another lead. The article, Flyers feel they get equal value by strengthening their defense. The lead, at first glance, the trade defies sheer logic, which, of course, is not to be confused with general manager's logic. Rest assured, however, that Bob Froze did not become a New York Ranger by accident. Then I found another lead, and it was about Gary McLean from Villanova signing with the Wildwood Aces. And it was Gary McLean understands the difference between the Wildwood Aces and Indiana Pacers. But for the moment, that isn't the point. Blah, 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 blah. And I was thinking. Hold on. Go ahead. Yep. There's nothing more embarrassing in the world than having. Any leads read to you, much less leads from 30 years ago. But go ahead. Proceed. <laughs> but here's what I was thinking when I was reading it. And then when I was just reading your stuff with The Athletic, I feel like you don't take stories off. Like all those stories. I'm not saying like the Gary McLean signing with the Wildwood Aces story is the best thing you've ever written. But you clearly put effort into it and you clearly put thought into the lead. But just as you did, you know. Are the reeling Dodgers really that bad or can they turn their season around from, you know, four days ago? Like, do you ever think, eh, I'm just kind of just, I'm just going to kind of mail this thing in? No, I never do think that. Now, sometimes it might read that way, but <laughs> I'm always trying. And actually, it's really important not to take stories off, in my view, because you want to establish a certain level of consistency. And beyond that, a lot of what goes into a story is the reporting, right? the number of calls you might make, et cetera. And it always never fails to me that the extra call provides something that will help the story. It doesn't always make the story, but it helps. And every detail is important. And no, I I don't think many writers try, take stories off, Jeff. Honestly, I think everyone tries their best. Now, sometimes you don't have the time, the ability, whatever, to make the story as good as it possibly can be. But when you've got 
time, you're going to try hard. I would expect most men and women doing this would say the same. See, I would, but it's very interesting. Like, um, I teach, uh, I teach college out here at a school called Chapman. And, you know, whenever I open up the school newspaper and I see a story that begins with, you know, the Chapman football team beat Cal Poly 28-27 yesterday behind two touchdown passes. I'm always saying to the writer the next day, you don't want to do that. Like, you always want to look for something. You have to find yes. something. And I feel like you've been in this game a long time. I've now been in this game a long time. Don't you think one of the key elements of surviving is sort of just always looking for that something? Yes, but at that age, as a college student, maybe you're not capable of more than putting sentences together coherently. And I'm not saying that dismissively. It, you have to start somewhere. And if you went back to college and looked at my stories, you'd probably find some like that. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying, but sometimes for people starting out, it's not so easy. Okay, so what are you looking for? Like, let's just say, you know, and it's Dodgers 6, Diamondbacks 4. What should you be looking for that maybe a lot of people aren't looking for? I'm always looking for something people don't have. It's as simple as that. Something that can distinguish what I'm writing, something that will give the readers an insight that maybe they didn't think of. It's always the same way. And there used to be, when I was at the Sporting News, a big sign in the offices in St. Louis that said, tell me something I don't know. I thought it was a little obnoxious, but <laughs> it does strike to the core of what I try to do and what I believe should be done. It's not as basic anymore as saying, well, the Dodgers beat the Astros in the World Series last night. You Darvish was great, blah, 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 blah. Well, he wasn't great, but you know what I'm saying. Right. And that is almost all the time what I'm after. Right, but how do you find it? Like, how do you go about, how do you actually go about tracking that down? Well, the good thing about being old is that you've seen a lot and you've experienced a lot and you kind of have developed over the years an innate sense for what might be different, what maybe to look for. And sometimes you stumble into it. And I'll tell you a great story. This is one of my favorite stories and it does not really involve me. But last year, I can't remember the World Series game, which one it was, but Tom Verducci, who was also writing nightly in addition to being on television, we work together on TV and obviously we write for different outlets, but we'll ride back together to the hotel after we do our work and then we start to write. So <laughs> we get in the car one night. And again, I don't remember the specific game. I should, but I don't. And Tom is sitting there looking <laughs> a little dumbfounded, but a little excited kind of at the same time. And I said, Hey, what's up? And he said, man, I stumbled into something tonight. And I had no idea going into it. This would be the story. And basically what it was was, the issue of the baseball. And it was one of the, actually, it was the best story of the World Series, I thought, that was written. It was Tom quoting both teams, people on both teams, on the record about how the ball is different, how it's leading to all this offense in the World Series, and how it's ridiculous. And did Tom go looking for that that night? No. But sometimes when you're talking to the right people, things will come up. And this had been kind of a running conversation that had been going on. In fact, at one point, I thought I was going to write that story earlier, but it just never happened. So right. it's not always an accident, but there are times when it's an accident when you stumble into something simply because you've asked questions 
and an angle developed. I'll give you another example, much more recent from this week. This involves me, and it's not a game story kind of thing, but it it kind of gives the same insight. So I'm talking to Billy Bean in preparation for a broadcast on FS1 last Saturday. It was the A's and the Blue Jays. I talked to him maybe Thursday or Friday, and I asked him about a lot of different players. And at one point, I asked him about Matt Chapman, who is their great young third baseman. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, how did, you, how did you come to draft him anyway? He was the 25th pick in the first round. How, how did that come about? And he basically told me that he did not listen to or did not take into account as seriously as he usually does the statistics of the player because his scouts were saying, we got to have this guy. And eventually, Billy Bean came around to that way of thinking. Now, that jumped out at me right away. Why? Right. Because Moneyball is the exact opposite of that. This led me to look into this further, and I went and I dug and I dug. And is it an investigative expose? No, but it's a really interesting story that I don't know that people knew about. And again, it just evolved out of a simple conversation and a simple question. That's really interesting. Um, I was thinking when you were saying this, like you and Verducci, sort of, you know, in the same age bracket, both really well-known and really respected baseball writers. Um, you know, I was writing for Bleach Report a lot last year, and they kind of had this shift to younger writers, where if you were sort of 40 and above, you you, you were kind of I, – I, I think there was definitely a feeling of being pushed out a little bit, and that if you were of an older age, you couldn't relate with the modern player. You weren't going to really work a locker room well because maybe you didn't know a lot about hip hop or maybe you didn't know about tattoos or maybe you couldn't, you know, whatever. You, you couldn't talk the talk. I wonder how you feel about that as a guy covering the game in his 50s. I would hope that one of my strengths is relating to players. And I think I still do relate very well to players and the age has nothing to do with it. And in fact, I have kids the players' ages, so maybe that helps me. I don't even know. But I don't buy the logic at all that because I can't talk about certain music group with a player that that prevents me from having a relationship with that player. By the way, I can't talk most music with players. But (laughs) regardless of that, uh, I, I don't buy it. And also, I don't buy the idea that Age in our business and experience is bad. In fact, as I explained earlier, it's actually an asset. Now, it doesn't mean that people my age, which is 55, have all the answers. It doesn't mean that someone 25 can't offer an insight or an edge or a style of reporting, whatever, that is fresh and different. And that can happen. That does happen. And I always view it the same, that it's a big world. And all of these different viewpoints and experiences contribute to a great website or a great newspaper. And I think the athletics is a good example of that. We're not just older people, obviously. We're not just younger people. We're a mix. And because we're a mix, and I'm just talking about the baseball side of it because I don't really, I'm not involved with any other side. But because we have that mix, it makes the coverage that much more appealing, for lack of a better term. I just had the Padres MLB beat writer on a couple of weeks ago and um, he's a young guy. He's in his third year. Yeah. And we were talking about working, working the major league clubhouse, which I never much enjoyed. It was not something I cared for sort of lingering the waiting, 
standing by a guy's locker. Is there a way, is it, is there a way to master this? Is there an art form to it at all? Hmm. I don't know. It's easier for me now than it was when I simply worked in print because of the television element. And I'm not going to deny it. The players have an understanding of who you are, a recognition factor that simply was not the same when I was solely print. That helps. And to me, the great beat writers, the great national writers, all can work a clubhouse and know where to go and maintain relationships with different players, players of all backgrounds and experience levels and qualities. That's really important. That's kind of where it all starts. It's kind of funny. When I was covering baseball for SI, I did not have your background. I was kind of Verducci's caddy. And I used to wear, you might remember, a really stupid Kangol hat. And <laughs> I wore it because I wanted players to remember me when I came to the clubhouse as the guy who had interviewed them before. That was the only, I, I actually kind of hated that hat. But I wore it as almost like, so, and, and it used to work where Ken Griffey would be like, oh, there's the hat. Or Mike Sweeney would be like, there's a the hat. And I just, <laughs> it's so stupid in hindsight. But I just felt like I needed something to make a connection with players. And maybe TV is your connector in a way. Yeah, I, I would say it definitely helps. And it's funny. I mean, you mentioned the hat. Well, it wasn't never my choice, but the bow tie is kind of the same thing in some ways. <laughs> and that was the choice of people above me. <laughs> and I came to accept it and embrace it. But I don't know. I Players, they see through BS pretty good. And I'm not yeah. saying a hat's BS. I'm not saying a bow tie is BS, but it's kind of I believe BS. you're... If you're genuine and you, and you show an interest, and, and actually somebody with the athletic, a younger guy has taught me this too, in his way that he believes if you go to a player, this is kind of self-evident, but it's important. If you go to a player and you have a certain amount of knowledge that he might not expect you to have about him, that is kind of the door opener. Because then the player respects, okay, this guy has done his homework, this woman has done her homework, I'll give them a little bit more than I might give someone else. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I actually think the value of being able to talk to, you know, I remember just as an example, Latroy Hawkins from Gary, Indiana. And I'd spent a lot of time in Gary, Indiana, in Gary, Indiana doing a story uh, about Lyman Bostock. And when I needed to do a piece on Latroy Hawkins, the first thing I brought up was Gary, Indiana. And we talked for 20 minutes about Gary, Indiana. I think that's a lot more of a powerful tool than being the same age or liking the same music, is knowing something yeah. specific about a guy. I would agree. Actually, what you just told me about Bleacher Report, that disappoints me, and it kind of shows me that <laughs> they're not serious about where they're going, because you can't exclude young people or old people. You've got that. I'll say it again. You've got to have a mix. That's how you get all the necessary perspectives. You don't get them otherwise. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son, Emmett. So, Emmett, did you know today is Nonsensical Day in America? What does that mean? I love your ancient cheese mask. What? Flipper Doodle Didi. What? Your mama is a blue donkey named Cyrus. What? 503 Sports has crappy sports merchandise. Oh, now I get it. You're making no sense in purpose. Kung Fu Panda Express. Because 503 Sports sells the best jerseys and hats. Farty Barty. And everything is throwback and reasonably priced. Mook Mook. Ah, damn it. I can't keep this one up. 
Yep, truth be told, 503 Sports has it all. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, or put differently, if you're a man or woman who licks the legs of dead elephants... <laughs> Dad! I mean, who has long dreamed of owning a Derek Holloway Michigan Panthers jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is all handcrafted and reasonably priced, so be legit and go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. I asked you, um, I asked you over, over DM before we did this, what sort of story stands out from your career. And you mentioned, uh, the Ripken when Ripken, uh, broke Lou Gehrig's, uh, Iron Man streak. And you actually talked about the column you wrote off the game when he broke the record. I actually think your back to back columns from that time period are insanely good. Like, uh, Wednesday, September 6th, Baltimore Sun headline, best is yet to come, but how? And your lead is, and tonight we do it again, only bigger this time, only better, 2,131. How many curtain calls will we make? How many tears will we cry? How long will his standing ovation last? Am I not stop, stop, Orioles pitcher Ben McDonald said. The pitchers might have to go back to the bullpen and warm up. Until the tacky post-game tribute last night was, in, was inspiring and overwhelming, exhilarating and draining, one of the loveliest moments in sports history. And then when he did it, he touched his home with a victory lap. It was a victory lap for the ages. Rafael Palmero and Bobby Bonilla pushed Tal Ripken out of the Orioles dugout and off the game's all-time Ironman went. Down the right field line, shaking hands with fans in the front row. Two really beautiful columns. And I could see a moment like that overwhelming a lot of writers, probably myself included. What do you remember about covering that and how you went about it? Well, first, thanks very much. That's really nice of you to say, Jeff. And... I remember the second column much more than the first. I'll set the stage because the context is really important and why it's so meaningful to me. At the time, there was no internet. And for an event like that, a national event, event of great importance, writers flew in from all over the country. And at the time, I was 33 years old. I was still a young columnist and not all that good in many ways. <laughs> so people flew in from all over the country and these were my peers or people I looked up to. Most of them were columnists, right? And I wanted to do the best job I could, not just for the usual reason, because it was a big event in the town where I lived, but because I knew all these eyes were on me. These guys never read me otherwise. They only read me because they were in town. We couldn't get the Baltimore Sun in LA back then. It was not happening. So I felt a certain amount of pressure and I did not know the column. The second one, the one after he broke the record would be on the front page. If I had known that, I would have felt even more pressure. Right. But that day before I went to the ballpark, I stopped at the paper and I sought out Mike Litwin, who had been a sports columnist and he, he at that point was a feature columnist. And still someone that he was maybe the best writer at the paper in either job. He was an amazing guy. And I said, Mike, what do you think? How should I handle this? And he gave me great advice. He said, this is a big deal. And you've got to see or you've got to write what this means, what this means to the city, what this means to the sport, what this means to the country. And that kind of put my head in the right place. Then, when he broke the record, Ripken, and that victory lap happened, it was an easy thing to write because it was all right in front of me. What was happening was amazing. It was unprecedented. A victory lap in the middle of a game. It just, it was so unusual. And I basically just wrote it like that. And I had some 
a matter that I don't know how much made the final column, but I knew the part about the country and the city and all that stuff factored in. So for all those reasons, I would say it's the best column I ever wrote, even though probably from a pure writing standpoint isn't. I'm sure there's something better I've written, but given the pressure, the context, the fact that I knew all these eyes were on me and the magnitude of the event, uh, that's my proudest moment. And not only that, Jeff, I've covered Olympics, covered Super Bowls, World Series, All-Star Games, pretty much everything. That was my favorite night ever. It was so cool, the whole thing. Wow. So that was a better night than when Gary McLean signed with the Wildwood Aces? <laughs> Even better than that. <laughs> <laughs> what was Ripken like to cover as a guy? What was he like to write about, just as a, as a figure? Well, well, it's funny you should ask that, because I did not have a great relationship with him. And even before that, I did not have a great relationship with him. And I wrote these columns because, of course, he warranted that at the time. And 95% of what I wrote about him was positive. But he did not like people asking questions, challenging him, and questioning him. It was almost as if he just viewed it as, hey, man, I'm who I am, and you guys cannot say a word. Brady Anderson, his friend, once asked me, how can you even question Cal? I said, Brady, the president gets questioned, the Pope gets questioned, everyone on this earth gets questioned, and he can't. So that's kind of where it was a problem. And even in 1987, the year his inning streak ended, his inning streak occurred well before his consecutive game streak. He actually played so many thousands of innings in a row. And his father, as the manager, finally took him out in a blowout game. And that night... Tim Kirkton and Richard Justice, the beat writers for the Baltimore Sun and Washington Post, respectively, they had morning deadlines, morning paper deadlines, and they really could not write much about that because it happened late. I had all night. I was working for an evening paper. Right? These things once existed. And I had a lot of time. And that was my first year on the beat. The next day, Cal says to me, how come you wrote all this, these, that long story and Richard and Tim barely wrote, wrote about it at all? Oh, my God. <laughs> So funny. It never got much better. <laughs> right. And there were times during the streak when I would not say he should end it, but maybe I would just question it. And then after he broke the record, I did really question it because there were times he was playing hurt and it was probably to the detriment of the team. So we didn't have a great relationship. I totally respected him. I thought he was amazing, but there were times where we just kind of didn't get along. Have you had dialogues with him after post retirement? Have you ever said to him, has that ever come up, sort of our relationship, when I was covering you as a writer? No, it never has, and it never will. Um, I can't imagine him ever bringing it up, and I have no interest in bringing it up. I've kind of moved on, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, it's really <laughs> it's interesting. Not that I dislike him, because I totally admire him. He not only was a great player, and he was a great player, actually a revolutionary player, uh, the first big man to play shortstop the way he did, and he set the stage for all these guys that followed. But during the streak especially, but really this was always with him. He handled things so gracefully, and he was so good with the fans. The stuff with me or whatever, or any reporter, it doesn't, that's not who a person is. He put on a good face in the most trying of times and the happiest of times, and that was something I always really respected. See, that what you did there is really hard. Like, I, um, I think it is very tempting when an athlete treats us sort of crappily or isn't that nice or is kind of dismissive, it's not that easy 
to be able to look past that. No? Is it easy for you? No, it's not easy. It's the most difficult thing about the job. You don't want people not to like you, and you don't want to just not get along with people. Now, there are some of us who do like that and kind of relish it. I'm not that way. I'm not ordinarily a confrontational person. But when I was the sports columnist for the Baltimore Sun, my job was to write opinions. Now, this job I have now is a little bit different. I'll occasionally write opinions, but it's not the same. So I don't know that Cal or certain others understood that that was my job. They just thought I was a guy stirring up trouble. That's kind of how a number of players would look at it. But to me, I just, Jeff, don't really care to revisit it. I don't want to revisit it. I always felt his feeling was, hey, you're just looking to make a name for yourself. And that wasn't true. And not that I wasn't looking to make a name for yourself, but that's not how you made it. And I always tell people this. This is my favorite thing to say when people say, ah, you guys are just trying to sell papers. The best-selling paper in the history of the Baltimore Sun, September 7th, 1995, the day after Cal broke the record. You know, I, I think that says a lot. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's a very good reply and a fair one. You had a, you had a piece of The Athletic very recently. Started with a lead, went into a Q&A, really good. It was about Kevin Pillar of the Toronto Blue Jays. The headline is nearly a year after shouting an anti-gay slur, Kevin Pillar reflects on how uh, how it has changed him. I can't even imagine Kevin Pillar wanting to talk about this, and somehow you got him to talk about it. How? Jeff, that's a good question. <laughs> and I went to the ballpark that day, and you asked kind of how do you get to things and think about things, and I was just around the Blue Jays. I didn't really have to write. I was just kind of hanging around, talking to people, seeing what I can find out. And I saw Pilar, and I remembered that it had been almost a year. And I said, you know what, man? I know Kevin a little bit. I said, you want to talk about this, just where you are a year later? Because I think it's kind of interesting. And people would be interested to hear what you've learned. Because I knew he had been through training and had done maybe some other things. So he said, yeah, and I'll be right back. Well, I didn't see him for about 45 minutes. This was hours <laughs> before the game in the clubhouse. And I thought, okay, well, we'll see. And then right. he finally came out and said, okay, let's do it in the dugout. And basically, he had commiserated with the Blue Jays PR guy, and they had discussed whether he actually should do this interview. And there was some feeling, he told me later, that he shouldn't do it because you bring it up and it opens it all up again. But then he told me this, so I'm not just being self-aggrandizing, that because he knew I had a big outlet, that people followed me, that would see the story, that this was a time when maybe he could summarize his thoughts and put them out there. And I told him I would do it pretty much Q&A. So I wrote it. I thought he came off very well because it had been Big thing at the time when he shouted an anti-gay slur at another player and he did get suspended for it. And I thought he did learn and expressed that in his words. The reaction was interesting. The reaction from some people was he made it about himself. He's playing the victim, which I didn't get the sense of at all. Right. The, another reaction I got was you shouldn't have been the one to write this. It should have been a member of the LGBT community they would have had a much better feel for it. And yet another reaction was, 
Okay, you wrote about when he talked, when he met with a group of LGBT people in Toronto, young people, and came away from that really with a better understanding. Why didn't you talk to any of them? Which actually was a fair question, but mm -hmm. I didn't actually think of it. I didn't think it was necessary. I talked to Billy Bean, who is Major League Baseball's ambassador of inclusion, and he was there with Pilar. He is a player who came out gay after his career was over. I thought his opinion alone was sufficient to express how Pilar handled that with the community. Regardless, stories like that always draw these kinds of reactions. And whether they are right, wrong, indifferent, it's the sensitivity that makes it difficult for players like Pilar who are in that situation to actually speak. So I thought it came off well. Others disagreed. That's the beauty of our business. <laughs> Do you read the comments? So that, that, column, that story in The Athletic got 150 comments. Do you read the comments? Yeah, I do. And I respond to a lot of them. I probably responded to some of those. I don't know. Wow. Interesting. Now, why do you, you know, a lot of people, the, the, the survival mechanism is to ignore the comments because you know a lot of them are going to be negative and blah, blah, blah. And you can't please everyone. Why do you, why do you, uh, why do you read them and respond to them? Because I want to know what readers are thinking. Yeah. And sometimes they have corrections, which are actually needed. <laughs> yeah. And I just like to know where they're coming from. Not because I, will necessarily take that into account the next time, but it's good to know where your audience is. That's the positive of Twitter mentions and comments. You kind of can get a feel for what's going on out there, what people are interested in, what they react to. It doesn't mean that's how you do your job. And it kills me when certain writers go on Twitter and say, hey, what would you like guys like me to write about today? No, no, no. Right. That's our job. But right. at the same time, I do read them for insight. Sometimes I read them because I thought I wrote something good and I want to hear praise. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> right. That's okay. We all have egos. Wait, I, you know, I was wondering about something. I was reading a column you wrote, uh, again, for The Athletic. Are the Dodgers really this bad or can they turn their season around? And, you know, I printed it out and it was 12 pages and I started reading and the writing was excellent. It was not a criticism of the writing. And I realized, and this was one of my problems when I was a baseball writer. Like, I don't care enough. Like, I don't care that much about Chris Taylor I don't care how Matt Kemp is doing in his return season. Like I, you've been around baseball now for a long time. How do you still care about, because it seems like you actually, you don't just like the nitty gritty. It seems like you almost live for the nitty gritty. And I just don't give two shits about it. And I wonder how you still do. <laughs> it's my job. And that. But it has to be more explains, than that. that. Well, I, I was going to say that explains part of it. And I do live not to break stories, but going back to what we talked about before, I do live to give insight and tell people things that maybe they hadn't thought of. I, that is always what excites me. And in that Dodgers story, it was somewhat of a routine column about a team that was struggling. But there was, I think the start of it was about this meeting the Dodgers had or this batting practice session in a cage inside. And the players were doing some things, and Cody Bellinger said, you know what, I think that was the breakthrough. I think that was going to help us out. And then I went to Chris Taylor, another player on the team, because we've been saying that for weeks. And right. I thought that was really insight. It kind of told us where the Dodgers were. That detail, and, I, and then I talked to the hitting coach, that, that detail, that's the kind of thing I do live for. And ultimately, yes, it, it's the same kind of thing that drives you to break stories and all of that. But... It's really those behind the scenes, so to speak, insights that I, I think Jeff 
Most reporters, that's what they want to do. I could think of, so I live in Southern California. I write a weekly column for The Athletic. I've mentally toyed with the idea of driving 20 minutes, not even, to to the Angels and doing something on Otani. And then I keep thinking, this story has just been covered a million times already. And, he's, he's, you know, it's only the beginning. Guy's played in 25 major league games. You're advising some, some kid who's doing, who wants to do a piece on Otani. Just as an example, use him as an example. He speaks through a translator. He's only 23 years old. He's being written about every day. What are you looking for? Like, what do you even do? It's a good question. And obviously, in a circumstance like that, you have to talk to others. And that's kind of where it starts. Now, it's interesting you mention this because a few weeks ago, I did write an Otani story. And I had the same feeling you did. What the heck am I going to bring to this party? Right. But I had been told by someone I know that what people don't know about him is how cerebral he is and how much of a student of the game he is. Now, I didn't know that. I had not heard that previously. So again, I built it off of that, asked people constantly about that and learned some things and tried to give an Otani perspective from that insight. If you went there, as Jeff Perlman, a guy who has covered baseball and has been around for a long time and has a unique view of not just baseball, but everything, I would expect you to come away with your own fresh insight on it. Now, a young person, that's a more, that's a bigger challenge because it's just a difficult thing to approach. But if you go there with the thought of trying to do something original, that's a good start. And maybe you do it and maybe you don't. Listen, none of us always succeed in that quest. But right. if you try and you come up with something, that's that's the way to go. Do you even, knowing he needs a translator to speak to you, do you even bother? Like, do you consider that mostly yeah. a waste of time or do you go with it? You do. No, in fact, for that story, I had a, I asked him like two questions on my own. Um, I forgot what they were, but the translator helped. I mean, it's difficult with an interpreter. There's no question. Um, but at the same time, I didn't in that case feel it was fair not to have his voice in the story. He, his voice had to be in the story somehow. It wasn't much in the story, but it was there. I just remember, I remember doing a long piece on Ichiro. I think his rookie year of the Mariners. And asking these questions and Ichiro giving these long answers and the translator saying, <laughs> he's, he is happy. He, he, he likes to hear. Well, and you're like, wait, what? That is the danger. And it depends on the interpreter, but most of the interpreters today are pretty darn good. And I don't know that I can say to a person, there are males and females doing this job, but I believe that we're getting more complete answers. Obviously the answer in certain cases, with Hispanic players would be if the writer spoke Spanish. And that's one of the great regrets of my career, not ever learning that language because it would have helped me in any number of ways. I know here we are, you and I, when we started this business, we both worked for newspapers. Not only did we work for newspapers, the goal was to work for a newspaper. I knew coming out of college, that's why I was going to yes. write for a newspaper. You did the same. Now we both write for a website without ads that people have to pay to subscribe to like this foreign entity of a, of a sort of idea. What do you tell the 20 year old college sophomore who writes for a student newspaper and really wants to be a sports writer? That's a tough one. And I get it all the time. It's hard to answer now because the business is so different than it was when we entered it. 
You don't go to a newspaper. You don't go to York, Pennsylvania, like I did, knowing and believing you would get out because, first of all, there probably isn't a job in York, Pennsylvania. And second of all, you might not get out. It's not so easy. And there are a shrinking number of jobs in the newspaper industry anyway. So my usual advice is try to latch on with a website of some kind in a major market. Maybe it's a television network's website. For instance, SNY in New York or uh, Fox Sports West in LA, something along those lines. But that is something that I just don't know how to answer properly anymore. And I feel guilty about it. And I don't want to discourage people. Right. And that is something I'm really careful about. And I've told this story before and I'll tell it again here. When I was at Newsday as an intern, Two years behind Tom Verducci, who was the greatest intern ever, just as he became the greatest baseball writer ever. <laughs> he was a star. Fucking Verducci. He was the best. Even then, he was the best. Yeah. And the sports editor at Newsday, after my senior year, or in the middle of my senior year, said, you should go to law school. Why do you want to do this? Wow. And I walked out of there thinking, I'm not going to law school. There's no freaking chance I'm going to law school. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that hurt. And... I always thought later you don't tell a person not to fulfill their dream. I, I just, you can't say no. And my own kids, it's the same way. They've all changed or all pursued careers that are not necessarily <laughs> gimmies by any stretch mm -hmm. of the imagination. It's sort of like journalism. And yet, you can't stop them. You can't stop them from trying to go forward. And I try to keep that in mind when I talk to young people. But at the same time, I do want them to understand that this business is in a rough place right now, and it might not happen for you very easily, if at all, even if you're extremely talented. And that's a hard thing to say to a young person when right. you, that person has all their dreams and really wants to go. But I feel obligated. Just look at the landscape. It's awful. You know, obviously, I had my uh, my infamous John Rocker moment, which which ended with John Rocker screaming at me in a clubhouse. Have you had moments with athletes? Like, have you ever had the contentious, really heated, this guy might punch me in the face moment in your career? Yeah, I think we all have. I, I actually love telling the story. I haven't told it very <laughs> often publicly. The Orioles of the mid-90s were a good team, actually a very good team at times. And they were also a team that had a lot of guys with big personalities and some selfish guys. And I believe the year probably was 96 and it was early in the season and Bobby Bonilla was complaining about being a DH and then Scott Erickson, a pitcher, had a game where balls went through the infield. He was a ground ball pitcher mm -hmm. and he was saying, oh, the defense wasn't that good. And I basically wrote a column saying, both these guys need to shut up. This is ridiculous. It's in April and here we go. Yeah. <laughs> so the next day I showed up because that is what I was taught to do, and I believe that's really important to do. That, mm -hmm. if possible, you hit that clubhouse the next day just to make sure if anybody wants a piece of you, they have an opportunity. So, Erickson <laughs> approaches me, and he says, I want you to re retract that. You should retract that. It's just wrong. I says, Scott, I'm not retracting anything. It's just, that's not how it works. He goes, well, that's not true. I'm not selfish. I'm like, okay. Bobby, so we're going back and forth, and it's not going anywhere. It's just going <laughs> in the middle of this. <laughs> back and forth, going nowhere. Bobby Bo comes up, puts his arm around Erickson, and says, why? I said, 
Why what? Why him? Why you? What are you talking about? He goes, why me? And I just almost started laughing because that was the whole point. These guys were selfish. Now, that one didn't turn violent or or even have the threat of violence. Bobby Bo at one point said, come around my locker. Like the same thing he said to Clavage. It was something like that. I'll stick my bat up your butt. And I did have players who were angry with me. I don't know that I ever felt physically threatened. But I will say this. Because I'm so small, early in my career especially, I felt it was a detriment. And it, it, it was a problem with trying to gain respect from these guys. And they just looked at me almost like a little kid because I looked young yeah. too. Yeah. And there were many days where I would say, you know what, man? I wish I was six foot five, 250 for one day. One day, and I'd settle some scores and go back to being five foot five. <laughs> right. I was actually going to, people who don't know, don't know that you're actually six foot four, 220. Like, people don't know that. It's your secret. Yeah, it's, that's true. I'm not six foot four, 220. Yeah. Probably cut that in half. <laughs> but yeah, the funny thing about Bonilla, and I had this talk with Clavett, Bonilla was always the like, hold me back. Who's going to hold me back? Like, <laughs> right, literally, right, right, who's right. going to hold me back? I'm going to get, like, he was so full of crap about that stuff. It was laughable. You know, of all the, like, Albert Bell, I would now want to be alone with if he was angry. Bobby Bonilla was all bark, all bark. Well, let me share this story too. This is not about me, but it's about someone we both know. Uh-huh. And uh, it's one of my all time favorite moments as well. 95 Indians with Albert, Kenny Lofton, big time team, great team. They come into Yankee Stadium, and Albert had done something. It might have been the Hannah Storm. I don't remember. <laughs> he did, did a lot of things. Right. And the writers are all in front of the Indians dug out there, and there's a lot of us. We're a lot more of us then than there are now. And Kenny Lofton chirped at the group, said something like, you know, you guys are vultures, whatever you might have said, vultures, whatever. Wally Matthews, who at the time was covering boxing and was as fit as a person could be. I think he was training like a boxer at that time. Mm-hmm. He basically got in Kenny Lofton's face and it would not have been a close fight if they had come to blows. Kenny Lofton just kind of like put his tail between his legs and went into the clubhouse. I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that before or since where a writer kind of intimidated a player. It was awesome. That is fantastic. I always love the New York writers like Clappish, Sherman, Wally, like, they were badasses. Like I wanted that bad. No, I don't bad that. Yeah, they're badasses. They were not. They were not going to cower because of a, of a of a ball player's attitude, which I really envied and never fully had. No, and, and Wally, I, I don't remember his exact words were what they were, but he, he got right in his face. It was it was incredible. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's awesome. Well, Ken, listen, I appreciate your time a whole lot. Seriously, I could I could talk to you for ten hours about this stuff. I always admire guys who who, who stick with it. You know, so here we are. Same. And listen, I think, Jeff, you can attest to this. We've all had our ups and downs. This is not a smooth sailing ship for all, right. any of us at all times. But I guess, yeah, there is something to hanging in there. I always actually tell my kids that. Hang in there. Just hang in there. <laughs> It'll get better, hopefully. And We're the crabgrass of sports writing. We're the crabgrass of sports <laughs> yeah, writing. <right>. Terrific. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Ken. I appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Ken Rosenthal, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Ken on Twitter at Ken underscore Rosenthal and read his stuff at theathletic.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Music and Google Play. 
and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. Keep writing.